0: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's July 2010 in Northumberland, England. A couple, a man and woman, are spending the evening at a party with friends. The young woman is enjoying herself, chatting with her boyfriend and their friends. They stay late into the night, unaware of the horrors they are about to face. Not far from the house where the party is taking place, a man exits a car. He approaches the building and then slinks into the bushes beneath an open window. He is waiting for his opportunity to enact a violent plan. When the couple finally walks outside, they come face to face with this man. The woman recognizes him as her ex-boyfriend. The last time she saw him was right before he had been arrested for assault. But she doesn't have time to ask how he found her, because the man shoots her and her new partner. She is wounded. Her partner is not as lucky. Then, just a few hours later, the gunman then turns his rage on the police, critically injuring an officer at point-blank range. He calls the station seemingly to gloat. You don't want me to kill yourself, but I'm
1: going to give you a chance because I'm, I am going for officers
0: now. The search for the newly released criminal became the biggest news story in the country.
2: People were following every move of this. and during that week of the manhunt, people had their televisions and their radios switched on around the clock.
0: The manhunt ended in a dramatic standoff with police aired live on British television. And the nation anxiously waited to see what would happen when the gunman turned the weapon on himself. He wanted to be iconic, he wanted to be
1: infamous, he wanted
0: to go out with a bang and not a whimper. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Raoul Mote. Raoul Mote was born on June 17, 1973, in Gateshead, in the northeast of England. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley gives some more insight into Mote's childhood. He was raised largely
1: by his grandmother. Um, His mother had some mental health issues, but she lived in the the local area, so so he did have some contact with her. Um, But it wasn't anything really out of the ordinary. A, A lot of families have to cope with that kind of thing.
0: During the 1970s and 80s, the northeast section of England was an area in economic decline. Many men in the area made their livings as shipbuilders or miners, but those jobs had begun to phase out. Employment in the area became scarce.
1: It wasn't a particularly economically prosperous
0: area, so it was always going to be a challenge for Moat to find his way in the world. Moat showed little interest in education, So his academic career did not go far. Instead, he found interest in advancing his physical strength.
1: Many teenagers go through a lot of changes, particularly at momentous points in their teenage years. When Moat was 16, he left school and there were some changes in him around about that time. So he became quite fixated on bodybuilding. And this is something that you often find with young working class lads in an area where the prospects of those those traditional, kind of tough men's jobs are few and far between. They look to other ways to, to become men, to make themselves visibly masculine. And I think that was what Moat was doing.
0: Former criminal psychologist Chris Carter and Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson say that Moat did more than just spend time at the gym to gain muscle.
3: When you see the results, then in, in anything, you, you get more, oh, wow, this is working. So then he went in more and more and then he started getting to steroids.
2: He'd obviously decided to express himself as the big fella around town. He was six foot three, 17 stone, and liked this idea of being a large, well-built muscle bodybuilder. And he clearly used a lot of steroids. And people who were close to him talked time and time again about just what a terrible temper he'd got.
1: Moat was somebody who has what I would describe as poor behavioral control. So somebody who flies off the handle quite easily, somebody who's quite readily aggravated. And if you throw steroids into the mix, you, you get what people often refer to as roid rage, you know, a real inability to control your temper. And it increases the levels of testosterone in the body. So when somebody has a predilection towards aggression, and then you add that on top of it, you've got a really toxic mix.
0: Moat found work in agriculture during the day, and at night, his large frame came in handy as an intimidating doorman at a nightclub. Then, in 2005, a 32-year-old Moat was caught by police carrying brass knuckles and a samurai sword. This was not the first time he had a run-in with the law, nor would it be the last, says former senior investigating officer at Northumbria Police Jim Napier.
4: He was known to the police for incidents uh, of domestic abuse. He had a number of partners with which he had troubled relationships with, and the police were involved. he had had arrests for, generally speaking, uh, low-level violence.
0: Moat had accumulated a long list of past girlfriends. And by the time he was 37 years old, Moat had fathered several children with different partners. One of these women was named Samantha and they had been in an on-again, off-again relationship for six years. Samantha was 15 years younger than him, and the two had a daughter together.
1: Well, the relationship between Samantha and Moat was an incredibly controlling one. It's one that I classify as coercively controlling. So Moat believed that Samantha was his possession. He was in control. He decided what happened, and she basically had to suck it up and get on with it. So it was his rules. Um, Everything was, was focused around him.
3: And he would control everything. He would control her movements, what she could buy, could not buy, what she did, who she talked to on the phone. So... Obviously, Samantha would probably feel, like, completely controlled. She didn't have the right to do anything.
1: You often find in relationships like this, women are kind of treading on eggshells, trying not to upset their abusive partner. But at the same time, it's very, very difficult for them to leave. Often, looking from the outside, we say, well, why are you staying in this relationship? And often, it's to keep themselves safe, because they know that if they were to leave, they put themselves in quite a significant amount of danger.
0: By 2010... Samantha was desperate to leave Raoul Mote, tired of his abusive and controlling behaviours. Then, in March of that year, a chance presented itself. Mote was convicted for assaulting one of his family members and sentenced to 16 weeks in Durham prison. Samantha saw this as her escape, but the situation only fed Mote's hatred for authority.
4: I am not a psychologist, but it was clear to me that Mote was a bit of a psychopath. He was always willing to blame others for everything that he did wrong. Everybody else was responsible. The social services were wrong. His legal team were wrong because they gave him bad advice, and the police were picking on him.
1: He's always laying the blame at somebody else's door because he doesn't think that he can do anything wrong, and that's a classic trait of somebody who's
0: narcissistic. Raoul Mote was safely locked away but he was holding a grudge and wanted revenge on those he believed had wronged him. One place he fixated his anger? On Samantha. From prison, he was unable to control her, although the two remained in contact.
1: Moat being in prison had a significant impact on his relationship with Samantha. For a man like Moat, it's very, very important to be in control all of the time, especially in terms of your personal relationships. When he's removed from that domestic picture, he has to try really hard to, to keep control. So he's on the phone to Samantha quite a lot. He has one of his friends essentially stalking her and checking what she's up to.
4: While Moat was in prison, Samantha did keep in contact with him. She had a daughter to him, uh, and she kept in touch with him for the sake of that
3: child. She was probably scared of him. You'd be scared if you have, you know, a man that big saying, "I am the man, and if you don't do what I tell you, you know, you're gonna get hurt or something." So she didn't know how to escape. So him being put in prison to her was like, you no, know, something helped her out here. You no, know, she finally was away from him, but. The problem was Sam knew he was coming back.
4: In his mind, the relationship wasn't over. Uh, In his mind, they were going to reconcile. But she didn't uh, have that plan at all. And uh, and, and the the sort of straw that appears to have broken the camel's back was her announcing the fact that she was in a new relationship with uh, Christopher Brown.
0: Christopher Brown was a 29-year-old karate instructor. He met Samantha in June 2010, just a few months after Moat had been sent to prison. Christopher's mother, Sally Brown, was unaware of their relationship.
5: As far as I know, Sam and Christopher only met each other a couple of weeks. They hadn't been going out with each other for very long at all. Christopher went up to Newcastle. He said he's going for the weekend. I said okay, fine. And then I got a phone call sort of like a few days later, and he said, "Well, Mum, I've got a chance to work here with karate. I'm going to stay." I said, I "Didn't like it, but..." Okay, fine. And that was it. He seemed to settle down. Loved what he was doing.
0: While Moat was in prison, Samantha was able to breathe easy. But she knew he wouldn't be in prison forever. In an attempt to protect herself, Samantha told Moat that her new boyfriend was a police officer.
5: Christopher was never a police officer. Never. He was a karate instructor. Never even thought of joining the police force. So I think she was just trying to back... Mote off so I think that must be the only reason she told him that.
3: She lied to Moat because she was afraid of Moat and she knew that when he came out he would have gone to her and to the new boyfriend so she started saying that he was a police officer because that wouldn't intimidate people. She also said that he was a karate instructor or black belt in karate.
0: But the news of her new police officer boyfriend did not bring the intimidation Samantha was likely hoping for.
1: Periods of separation are a really high risk time for people who've just come out of an abusive relationship because the abuser has essentially lost control at this point in time. The victim has taken some power back and, and has some some authority now over their own lives and the abuser hates that. And they're gonna resort to quite drastic measures to get
3: that control back. So the only thing he had to look forward to is going back to Sam, to the person he loved. And then she took that away from him, right? And that would just like completely bring his anger to surface like crazy. There's no
6: doubt at all that, that those conversations while Moat was in Durham Prison were the blue touch papers that ignited the bonfire that became Raoul Moat.
0: On Thursday, July 1, 2010, Raoul Mote was released from prison after serving several months on assault charges. His now ex-girlfriend had moved on to a new partner, but Mote believed he was entitled to Samantha. Former senior investigating officer Jim Napier says Mote enlisted the help of a friend, Carl Ness, to find out more information on Samantha and her new boyfriend, Christopher Brown.
4: Moat started planning this while he was in prison. He recruited or used Carl Ness to keep an eye on Samantha and do what, is a, what we would call surveillance by watching her house, seeing who comes and goes, identifying vehicles and trying to identify who the new boyfriend was.
0: In prison, Moat had decided he was going to kill Christopher Brown as soon as he was released. And he didn't waste any time acting on his plan.
4: The way in which more planned this was quite meticulous. He took steps to try and identify the the, the karate instructor, i.e., Christopher, by making phone calls to to health centres, to karate clubs, to um, to the extent that he actually drove around the routes that they took on the fatal night. Uh, they actually had a, a a dry run, if you like, on the Thursday night.
0: On Friday, July second. Staff members at Durham Prison warned Northumbria police that Moat might pose a risk to Samantha. But unfortunately, the information wasn't taken seriously. Later that night, Carl Ness drove Moat to nearby Gateshead, where he had discovered that Samantha and Christopher would be attending a house party.
4: Moat was dropped off quite near the address that Samantha and Christopher were visiting, and he was able to walk in there and hide himself. Uh, underneath the front window next to the front door where he was able to listen because it was a July night, the window was open, it was warm.
0: Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley adds. He could hear people talking and and saying
1: things and he picked up on things that were being said about him or things that he perceived to be about him and he started texting his friend Ness and, and expressing his anger and frustration at what he was hearing this is going on, it's really annoying me. He's essentially venting. And this is something that you see narcissistic people do quite a lot. They want an audience for their complaints and their rants. They want validation. They want other people to agree with them and say, yeah, you're completely reasonable.
0: Mote lay in wait outside the house.
4: Around about 2.30 in the morning, Samantha and Christopher leave. And as they come out the front door, Mote stood up. He was clearly armed with a gun, and and pretty much without warning, he immediately shot Christopher. Christopher started trying to run away, and as he tried to run across the grass area, he was shot again, which was enough to make him fall. Mote then calmly walked over, reloaded his gun uh, in front of witnesses, and then shot him a third time, causing his death was nothing more than a cold and calculated assassination.
0: In what amounted to a public execution, Moat used a sawed-off shotgun to shoot Christopher Brown at point-blank range. And to create maximum damage, Moat had loaded his shotgun with lead fishing weights. Former pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains the significance of that.
7: They're bigger, they're heavier, they do more damage. They're going to make those discharge is more lethal. Certainly with a close-range discharge of a shotgun, even with small pellets, you're going to get a large mass going into the body that's going to lacerate major organs, major blood vessels, very likely to be fatal.
0: Christopher had no chance of survival. Somehow, amid the chaos, Samantha had managed to run back inside the house in an attempt to protect herself.
4: After he'd shot Chris, he then turned round and walked towards the house that they had been in. He could clearly see that Samantha was in the sitting room there, and he fired a shot at Samantha, which went through the window and struck her in the abdomen, causing her some critical injuries. So he fatally wounded one victim. He would critically injured a second victim, and then he calmly walked away from the scene.
0: Moat had no idea whether he'd killed Samantha or not, but he didn't care to check. After firing into the house, Mote casually walked away from the horrible scene, weapon still in hand.
1: Well, most people, when they commit a murder, they are absolutely horrified at what they've done. They can't quite believe that the magnitude of it, they often go into a state of of shock and, and literally don't know what they're doing afterwards. But Moat was very calm, he was very calculated. He phoned his friend, he said, I'm full of beans. And the reason for that was because he thought he'd restored the natural order of things. He felt entitled to carry
0: out those shootings.
4: For him, it seemed to have been a bit like mission accomplished. and and he he seemed quite calm and pleased with himself.
0: But the calm he was feeling didn't last. Moat had killed Christopher Brown and critically injured Samantha in front of multiple witnesses, most of whom recognized him. The police were immediately on the hunt for the 37-year-old man. And Moat had already left the police a strange piece of evidence. Earlier that day, Moat had given a letter to a friend to deliver to detectives. It warned the police that they would pay for what they've done. He had a
1: 49-page letter that he'd written outlining his complaints about various things. And you often see this with people who are narcissistic. When they have a complaint, when they're angry about something, it's not enough for them to just make a concise statement and, and sum it up neatly. They will go on and on and on.
0: In the letters, Mote wrote, They've hunted me for years. Now it's my turn. The public need not fear me, but the police should, as I won't stop till I am dead. They took it all from me—my kids, my freedom, house. Then Sam. Where could I go from there?
1: And in these these statements and, and these letters, they'll be saying, "You know, this is this is all about victimizing me. I'm the victim here. Everybody's out to get me." And it goes on. It's embellished. It's exaggerated.
0: He's a classic narcissist. As Raoul Mote began his time on the run, 300 miles away in Berkshire, uniformed officers paid a visit to Sally Brown, the mother of murdered 29-year-old Christopher Brown.
5: It was our local police that came round to me. They just said that there'd been an incident and that Christopher was dead. But then um, I had the family liaison officer from Newcastle on the phone, and they didn't tell me too much over the phone. I think it was a case of I wasn't listening anyway. All I heard was, your son's dead. That was it. It's You seem to sort of cut everything else off. And when, it, when you're told something like this, you, I think your body and your brain just goes into, um, how can I describe it? You're hearing people, they're talking to you. And at the time I was at home, I was listening to these people on the phone. And I was talking to the police officers at the house with me. But I could also hear my daughter screaming in the background. She's absolutely gone hysterical. He was a lad. He was a typical little boy. He was just very happy, laughing all the time. And he would help anybody if he could. He wouldn't let anyone get hurt. He was just a nice lad. But then I'm biased, I suppose, because he's my boy. <laughs> when you lose one of your children, you just can't describe it. Can't describe it. Surrendous.
0: While the Brown family mourned, Raoul Mote was still at large. His hatred toward the police was only rising. Samantha had told Mote that Christopher Brown worked as a police officer, and this lie was a catalyst for Mote's rage.
5: Christopher has never been in the police force. He's a karate instructor, and whether she thought telling him that he was would back him off a bit, I don't know.
0: Mote's hostility was turning into a vendetta, and he was determined for police to know who they were dealing with. In the early hours of Sunday, July 4th, after being on the run for 24 hours, Mote dialed 999. This is the gunman from Berkeley last night. Uh, My name is Raoul Mote. What I'm
1: talking about is to tell you exactly why i have done what I've done. Right Now, my girlfriend has been having an affair behind my back. But one of your officers, this gentleman that I shot last night, the the Instructor, right? Now, you, you bastards have been on to me, right, for years. He's have hassled this, harassed this. He is us, he's just more than was alone. He was wanted me to do myself in, and I was gonna do it until I found out about him properly and what was going on. And as soon as I found out with was I thought, nah, you've had too much from me. You've had too much from me. You'll get your chance to kill us, right? You'll get your chance to kill us. <laughs>
4: We, we don't
1: I, want to do that. We I don't want to do that. I feel You don't do want me to kill myself, but I'm going to give
4: you a chance, because I am going for officers now. Raoul Mote spent a number of minutes ranting on the phone, effectively declaring war on Northumbria police and saying, I'm coming to get you.
0: Mote had no intention of hiding from
1: the police. Essentially, he wants an audience, he wants to vent. And this call really is a a poor me monologue. He's saying to the operator, this is all your fault, you being the police, you've done this to me. It's all about him. It's saying, these are the reasons why I've done what I've done, because I've been driven to it by other people, I'm not responsible.
0: After making the 999 call, Moat kicked his vengeance up a notch further, a friend Curum Awan, had picked Moat up and was driving him around in a black Lexus. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says Moat's two friends had known of the plan ahead of time.
6: Moat's two closest associates in the criminal underworld were Ness and Awan. They assisted him the moment he left Durham prison.
0: Awan was helping Moat carry out the second part of his plan. Actively hunting for police officers, then just 12 minutes after making his threatening call to police, Moat spotted a police car sitting at a roundabout in the Denton area. Inside was a 42-year-old husband and father of two, police constable David Rathband.
4: Moat approached the car from behind, tapped on the passenger window, and David turned. And as soon as he turned, Moat shot once through the window, which hit David right in the middle of the face. He fell into the foot compartment of his car.
0: Moat shot P.C. Rathbun twice before walking away from the scene. Former criminal psychologist Chris Carter says it was lucky Moat did not end up coming across any other officers that day.
3: Moat was on the anger rampage. If he had passed another police officer on a motorcycle, he probably would have stopped and shot him as well. If there was a police officer in the shop, he'd probably shoot him as well. It's because he only found one. If he had found more, he would have shot more.
0: Mote viewed the shooting as a personal victory. When Rao Mote shot PC David
1: Rathband, it, it signified a real escalation in his offending. This wasn't just about Rao Mote and people who had annoyed him.
0: Miraculously, David Rathband was not killed in the attack, but he would never see again. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton gives more insight into how shocking it is that Rathbun was not killed in the attack.
7: As a forensic pathologist, if you're told somebody has been shot at very close range in the face with a shotgun, you're expecting to perform an autopsy. That person is almost certainly dead. I think it's almost miraculous that David Rathbun survived what happened to him. You can see from the x-rays the number of little pellets in him. Any one of those could easily have gone and struck something utterly vital and killed him. He was being shot in the face.
0: Then Moat made another 999 call. He was determined to make sure the police knew it was him who had shot the officer.
4: Within maybe an hour of that incident, Moat basically asked Northumbria police, do you believe me now? I've just downed one of you guys and just remind colleagues in Northumbria that I'm coming to get you. And that was a big, big game, game changer in this manhunt.
0: In July 2010 in Northumbria, England, police were looking for 37-year-old Raoul Moat. After being released from prison, Moat had hunted down and killed 29-year-old Christopher Brown, the new boyfriend of Moat's ex-girlfriend, Samantha. Moat also shot and injured Samantha before shooting and injuring police constable David Rathbun. What had started as revenge on an ex-girlfriend and her partner had quickly escalated into a much bigger story with nationwide interest. Jeremy Thompson was the anchor for Sky News at the time.
2: Within 24 hours, policeman David Rathband had been shot in the face. A rare occurrence for a policeman to be shot in Britain. That really ramped up the story. The media poured into the Northeast very quickly. It became an unprecedented manhunt over that long, hot July week up in the Northeast of England. And the media interest was intense. People had their televisions and their radios switched on round the clock.
0: And the Brown family was watching as well. Sally Brown was unable to escape the image of her son's killer.
5: I I couldn't turn the news on because every time something came up about it, it was always Roundmote's photo that they were showing because he was the one that was on the run and what have you, but... I just, even afterwards, I said to the police once that it seems as though Christopher was a number put
0: under the carpet. With his behavior becoming increasingly erratic, the authorities were warning the public not to approach Moat. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says why this warning was issued. This wasn't just
1: about Raoul Moat and his personal issues with his relationships. This represented a real risk to the public. So the scale of this case now was was incredibly significant.
0: Former senior investigating officer Jim Napier and Jeremy Thompson say that the manhunt for Moat was like none the public had seen before.
4: It was an operation that was supported by police forces from across the country, colleagues from London, Liverpool, Manchester. There was equipment sent from Northern Ireland. There was a huge response to this because day-to-day policing had to continue in the Northumbria Police area. They had to be there in
2: numbers and they had to have the right equipment. They had to be armed. It was on an epic scale. They'd not only got 160 armed officers, but also they'd got special armoured vehicles, they'd got specially trained tracker dogs, they'd got helicopters up, and they'd even got an RAF jet up there running reconnaissance missions over that whole area. It was an extraordinary reaction to... What they knew at the time to be perhaps no more than one man with a gun on the loose.
0: But after shooting and blinding P.C. Rathbund at point-blank range on Sunday, July 4th, Moat dropped off the radar.
2: Two shooting incidents in 24 hours and then gone. No more phone calls, no more messages. He just vanished into thin air. We did not know where he was. He had come down, caused all that damage and then disappeared.
0: Moat was nowhere to be found, until Monday, July 5th. He posted on his Facebook page, I've lost everything. Watch and see what happens. Police appealed to the gunman to turn himself in, but Moat declined and remained armed and extremely dangerous within the community. On July 6th, the black Lexus Moat had been in when he shot P.C. Rathbund was found abandoned in the small town of Rothbury, 30 miles north of Newcastle. Police set up a two-mile exclusion zone and urged residents to stay indoors.
2: The hunt suddenly started to focus on a very pretty market town called Rothbury. Presumably Moat knew pretty well and felt that he could steer clear of the police around there and whatever game he had in mind, whatever he was doing to taunt the police at the time or to evade the police, he felt it was his best bet.
0: There was still no sign of Moat, but police had found an abandoned campsite in Rothbury, along with a voice recorder with files of Moat bemoaning how unhappy he was with the media reports about his private life. He also made threats to the general public unless the story stopped. So
1: he's listening to what's going on um, in the media. He's following the coverage. So all of this is going to be fueling his aggravation and his his sense of annoyance, essentially. So this is somebody who's becoming incredibly dangerous the the more bruised their ego
0: becomes. On Wednesday, July 7th, 2010, police found yet another letter in a tent. It was addressed to his ex-girlfriend, Samantha. Detectives knew Moat must be somewhere nearby, but didn't know exactly where they offered a ten thousand pound reward for any information that could lead to his capture. The media interest in the case was intensifying, and stations began broadcasting coverage twenty four hours a day by July eighth. Moat had been on the run for five days, but the police had finally made a breakthrough
2: most curious twists in this whole story, that at one stage, a few days into the manhunt, police were telling us they believed that Moat was holding two hostages. But then, strangely, this story twisted round. The next thing we hear is that the police have arrested two men, Ness and a one, who they now tell us they believe were friends and aiders and abettors of the runaway man, Raoul Moat. Within 24 hours, he'd gone from two hostages to two men arrested, believed to have some involvement in Moat's escape and perhaps even the shootings itself.
0: The arrest of Moat's accomplices, 26-year-old Carl Ness and 23-year-old Kuram Awan, did little to tear public interest away from the manhunt around Rothbury. But now the media had been issued a news blackout.
2: Not a complete blackout, but a blackout on some of the personal details that clearly they felt was stirring up Moat even more, making him even more potentially dangerous.
0: That said, Moat's time in the spotlight was running out. On Friday, July 9th, A local resident spotted a man she believed to be Raoul Mote walking next to the river in Rothbury.
4: She approached a police patrol who went down to check it out. As soon as Mote saw the police vehicle, he sunk to his knees, put the gun to his head, and uh, that's when the standoff
6: started.
0: Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says the images of the standoff were haunting.
6: Some of those images will live with me forever. I can remember them vividly, live, constantly going back to seeing what was happening, Moat on his knees. That riverbank is the abiding image of Raoul Moat in almost everybody's mind.
0: On the evening of Friday, July 9th, people across the nation were glued to their TVs as the drama unfolded. The police were dealing with a man who was unpredictable armed and extremely dangerous.
4: We had police negotiators who were there on the scene, face to face, who spent the next six hours or so speaking to him and trying to persuade him that the right thing to do was put the gun down and surrender himself to custody.
0: The police were determined that Moat come out of the standoff alive, and the extensive media presence only added to the pressure.
4: You're there focused on doing your job, but you're doing your job in the knowledge that there's lots of people watching you, scrutinizing you, and some of them judging you.
0: Mote wasn't planning on giving himself up so easily, and media scrutiny only continued to grow. Day turned to night, then to the early hours of Saturday morning. Police tried to negotiate with Moat, but the situation remained tense. Moat remained kneeling with his gun pointed at his own head.
2: It was an incredibly long and tense night. Darkness fell. We really could see very little of what was going on. We could just see the outlines of the police cordon. And the night dragged on after midnight into the small hours. And it was around one o'clock in the morning when there was a dramatic series of events, hard to make out. It was confused, it was dark. It was very difficult to know exactly what the sequence of events were.
0: There was one last attempt to capture Moat. Police tried to use a taser on the 37-year-old fugitive. They were insistent on taking him in alive.
4: On this occasion, the tasers that were used were long tasers like shotgun-style tasers Uh, which hadn't yet been approved for use by the police. When you're in a mindset and a determination to uh, arrest somebody, to call them to account for the crimes that they've committed in the safest possible way, then it was right and proper that it was given a try. Uh, It didn't work.
0: At around 1.15 a.m. on Sunday, July 10th, the sound of a shotgun rang through the air. Raul Mote had taken his own life.
1: I don't think the police had any chance of talking Raul Mote down. He wanted to be iconic. He wanted to be infamous. He wanted to go out with a bang
0: and not a whimper. The seven-day manhunt and six-hour standoff had finally come to a tragic conclusion.
2: He clearly had decided that he didn't want to be taken captive. He didn't want another sentence in jail again. This was it. This was his final stand. This was the moment he decided to pack up, give up, not be taken again.
0: With Moat dead, the police could focus their attention on those who aided him during the seven-day scramble. At a trial at Newcastle Crown Court in March 2011, Moat's two accomplices, 26-year-old Carl Ness and 23-year-old Kiram Awan, were convicted of conspiracy to murder attempted murder, and armed robbery. Awan was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years. Ness was further convicted of murder and a firearms offense, and was sentenced to 40 years.
6: They were Moat's assistants. They were, in every sense, the sorcerer's apprentice. They were there to facilitate Moat's plan, which was to become famous. He wanted his 15 minutes of celebrity, and boy, he was gonna get them.
0: And the fallout of this dreadful case didn't end in the death of Raoul Moat. In February 2012, P.C. David Rathbund took his own life, unable to cope with his blindness since the shooting. His colleagues at Northumbria police believe that 44-year-old David had become Moat's second victim after Christopher Brown.
4: David's involvement in this case, you know, he was a police officer doing his job uh, in uniform to the best of his ability and... Without warning, he suffered horrific injuries that changed his life and, in my view, ultimately led to his death. And I will always hold Raul Mote responsible for killing David Rathbun. These people do these things and they don't think about the consequences
5: of the people that they leave behind. They said it would get easier,
4: but no, it gets harder. Everybody talks about the Raul Mote case. This started as... Christopher Brown murder inquiry. My team that investigated it, it continued to be the Christopher Brown murder inquiry. The only thing he did wrong was he fell for a girl who Mo believed was his possession and he would use any force to deal with that, and he did. Um, and we should never forget that Christopher was the first victim here.
5: Christopher was a very happy-go-lucky, fun-loving, person he was a good son he was a good friend to his friends a good brother to his sister he's never out of our thoughts he's I just miss him so much
0: what makes a killer is an audio boom original series in production with woodcut media and hosted by me jennifer natoso this series is produced by Audio Booms Lauren Vogel, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Credgie. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, we would love a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. On Saturday, July 1st, 2000, an eight-year-old schoolgirl was kidnapped from the street in front of her grandparents' house at Littlehampton in West Sussex two weeks, the public watched as police desperately combed the area for the little girl.
2: Everybody wants to find that child, because a missing child is every parent's worst nightmare.
0: But Sarah would never be found. She was abducted and murdered by a 41-year-old convicted pedophile.
2: This
6: was a girl he didn't know, who fell into the hands of what could only be described as a monster.